foundation. Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, This far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their life and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of snow, or seen the storehouses of hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed, or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no one lives an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become hard as stone? when the surface of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you how we are? Who gives the ibis wisdom or gives the rooster understanding? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? <coughs> Who can tip over the water jars of the heaven when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? Do you hunt prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? 
Thank you, Mark. Um, so stepping back again for, for just a moment to the section preceding this chapter, uh, the discourse of Elihu, I, I would summarize it in this fashion, that Elihu is arguing that human wisdom is limited, that humans cannot fully understand all the ways of God, that it's impossible for humans then to be able to pass judgment on, on God's justice or God's ways or whatever one perceives God is doing. Um, and if that is a valid summary of Elihu's speech, then I think it is a fitting segue into God's responses here in, in Job chapter 38 and in, in the entirety of 38 through 41, as we'll see. Nevertheless, I sort of feel like the transition seems a bit abrupt to me. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Uh, what is obviously a very important portion of the book is introduced with just these, these few words. It, it might be abrupt, but it does serve to, to transition the reader to, to understand that this is now God who is, uh, who is talking. But what about this whirlwind? Then Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind. Where did the whirlwind come from? A scientific interpretation is that the wind in the world is a vortex mm. described by particles mm. moving in a general mm. circular okay. mo motion. Okay. Grid. Okay. And that's what it Yeah, yeah. And God is speaking out of that why or how or not chaos is a world. It's ordinary. Okay. I like that. I don't find it very satisfying to take the Bible as a science textbook. This is portrait. Yes. Yes. And uh, so God is answering out of the whirlwind. That's just portrait. I mean, God is okay. all powerful. He's, he's answering Job. And to try to read scientific facts into what they <laughs> said, I think, just misses the whole point. Yeah. It just okay. takes the beauty away from the portrait. The portrait itself. Great. Yeah. I think that uh, God didn't have to create anything. He could have just spoken to Job, you know, in a dream or. <coughs> Just out loud, whatever. Yeah. But I think he wanted. What's conveyed here is power. It's, it's all powerful. He didn't have to do that. Yeah. Okay. And by that, I don't mean to. Uh, I disagree with my good friend John, but I don't mean to say that he's wrong. Yeah. I just don't take it that way. <laughs> I don't take it as a science textbook. Yes. This is what wrestling John with John scripture. Wants to take it as a science textbook. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's fine. This is what wrestling with scripture means, yeah. trying to look at it from but, but multiple perspectives, right? Becky. I think it's a great point. Yeah. Um, God is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was just thinking, I always wonder if it was for Job's benefit or his friends. Ah, mm -hmm. uh, okay. All right. Good. If you take it that God is listening for 30-some chapters of what's going on, <laughs> <laughs> then he's going to respond with some yeah. force. Yeah. I mean, he's God. Uh, you'll, you'll see in a moment. I, I, I mean, if yeah. God did speak, he wanted to say something that was important, mm -hmm. it could be poetic. 
Yeah. But it also could be the veracity of him listening to this right. and saying, listen. It conveys the importance. In our, in our world, I'm, I'm going to tell you what's going on. Yeah. And then to double back on what I said, it could be just a natural manifestation of God's uh, passion. You may not be able to hold it. Yeah. And that comes out like that. Ah, okay. All right. Another thing to think about is just uh, we think God meeting us where we are. Mm. In Job's life, he's certainly been experiencing a whirlwind, and all of these things, all of these comforters, have been less than comforting. And yeah. out of this, God speaks to him. Excellent. Excellent. Well, and we don't know where Job fits in the biblical narrative, but I'm reminded of another story where. There is a whirlwind and there is a fire, but God is not in those. God is in the stillness. Um, and so to your point about poetry, I wonder if this whirlwind is reflective of what is happening in Job. So God, God is in the midst of this whirlwind that is that's Job's life right now. Because yeah. um, we know that God can show his power through utter stillness as well. Yep. All good. Thank you. Uh, just a real quick note that this Hebrew term here can be translated whirlwind, a storm, tempest, a hurricane, any of those would probably be a proper uh, interpretation. So the first thing I do though is sort of go back to Job itself and see if we have any other instances of a wind or a whirlwind. And uh, of course at the very beginning um, uh, of Job in chapter 1, uh, one of the sufferings that Job is that his children are killed by a great wind, right? Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came across the desert, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on them, and they are dead. But this is actually a different Hebrew term, and I don't think it fits. With, I don't think it has anything to do with the whirlwind. Because that, God was not in that whirlwind, was he? In the preceding chapter, Elihu spoke of the wind uh, a couple of times. Um, but this too is a different Hebrew word than we've got here in chapter 38. And again, I think Elihu was just talking about the natural wind and using it as, as a metaphor in chapter 37. It's sort of getting to, to where... I think Becky was going a little bit. God is often depicted as speaking out of a wind or some kind of weather phenomenon. Um, there's several, I have several examples here. These first four from the prophets and Psalms where, where God is depicted in, the, in this fashion. Um, also, Elijah, going back to your story of Elijah being spoken to by the still small voice, God wasn't in the tornado or the fire. Or any of these weather phenomena and stills but Elijah was carried away up into the heavens in a whirlwind right um, throughout Exodus God led the Israelites in a pillar of cloud right even they're crossing the Red Sea God sent this east wind God was in that wind and of course the cloud that was on Mount Sinai when Moses received the, uh, the Ten Commandments God was speaking out of that cloud and even a New Testament example on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, God came back and, and spoke to them through this voice in what uh, Matthew describes as a bright cloud. So 
God is often depicted as, as speaking this way. But uh, to what one of you uh, also said, I think it also may uh, depict the, the, the importance of what God is getting ready to say. It sort of sets the tone for God's response. Um, God's speech then consists of a, a s- series of rhetorical questions. Um, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? Have you commanded the morning since your days began? Who has cut a channel for the torrents of rain? And do you know the ordinances of heaven? Um, it's as if God is saying, I am the creator who is now speaking to you, who in my sovereign power created the earth, back up to the first question, contained the sea, back up to the second question, governed the light, the light, back up to the third, created the rivers, the rain, the ice, that's in the fourth section here, and even set in motion the stars and the clouds, all the weather patterns. I am the creator who did all of these. Um, so if, if this is, uh, well, well, let me just say this, are the, uh, before we look at this more, more from a broader sense, are there any, were there any other aspects of this chapter that jumped out at you as Mark was reading it to us this, this morning? Uh, any, yes? I've always thought of it in terms of God coming down on Job and his friends as rhetorical questions and like, let me tell you something now. Mm-hmm. You know, you know the answers to these questions. But as I was hearing him read it so well, actually, I was it was like it was like I was meditating on each thing. And it's like when you start to think about each thing saying it is it's worshiped it's awe-inspiring it's like i like i want to go home and read it slower you know and just yeah. chew on each word right you know and and, and, and it, it has powerful meaning. yeah and i would encourage us all to do that yes absolutely any any anything else that jumped out at, at this chapter any especially in particular verse, a portion of a verse. Alright, then let's, let's look at it a little bit more from the, the larger perspective. Okay, verse 38-1 said, Yahweh is answering Job. So, a little bit abrupt again, like I said, because Job wasn't the previous person talking. It was Elihu, right? He's not answering Elihu. He's answering Job. How is God answering Job? Maybe to begin with, what's what's Job's question? Yeah. Is God saying, trust me? Is that what God's saying to him? I believe that is a bottom line part of the answer, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But explore that a little bit more. How? What well, how is this God saying, trust me? <clears throat> God is breathing his sovereignty over the, like, the physical realm, the elements, the, okay. the bears, the stars, everything that Job can see, and Job has been attacked. 
in various physical and everything around him that he knows in the physical world is different. Yep. Um, so God is kind of taking this big thing and narrowing it down to if I can control all of this, I still see you. I still I still know the hairs on your head. We haven't gotten to that part yet. <laughs> um, I think that's one of the things that he's trying to keep Job's perspective broad Okay. Yep. All right. Good. Well, I think the the question Job is asking is is God trustworthy? Mm. Um, and so, you know, like you said, this is a response. Yep. But I don't know that it's an answer because right. to that kind of question, it, it takes relationship. It doesn't take words. It takes relationship. And I think that's um, what we're getting kind of a taste of here. Okay. Is God is Job asking? Is God trustworthy? Or the underlying question that we still ask today: Why do bad things happen to people? And if you grew up like I did, where we sort of put God as He's up here, He's not really down here in everyday life, or you read through this, whether you read through it with the Western scientific mind or the Eastern philosophy and artistic mind. God is, is saying, I'm in everything. And you know, we still have the question then, why do bad things happen to good people? I don't know that in this section we have that answer. But it's, it's, I think he's asking an underlying question. Can just can be trusted? And it's the, as Josh said this morning, some of the pictures we've been seeing from the new telescope thing about 300 miles above us. It's all inspiring. Yeah. Yep. I kind of like though that he's saying. Uh, I mean, the line about that he, he like brings the rain in like parts of the desert that no one even is. That like he, I don't know. It just sort of brings some mystery. It's like I'm doing good things, you don't know. Yeah. Or, or something like that. That's how right. I it. Right. Oh, I think that's exactly right, yeah. You know, so often uh, in the New Testament, when people ask Jesus questions, he answered them with another question. Mm. And that causes, <laughs> those, causes people to really think. Yes. And I I noticed here, you know, yeah. it's, it's all questions that right. God is asking. Right. It causes us to think and, and to really reflect on who is God. Yeah. Excellent. Very good point. I hadn't thought about relating it to what Jesus says, but yeah. The first thing God says is, who obscures my plans without knowledge? Mm. That's the first thing. Yes. And then everything after. Right, right. And they're questioning his whole time. Yes, that's exactly right. I think this is really typical of the Old Testament. It's not only here where we see physical things being used to teach our finite minds a little, a little bit of something. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus Christ does everything he possibly can to get our minds off the physical and the spiritual. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Just those little steps to broaden our minds just a little bit. And that's, yeah, I think what the poet has God's response doing for Job, right? And we'll see from Job's response in just a few minutes that I think it worked. I like it that he 
spoke, even though Job wasn't speaking in the last segment. He speaks to Job. That's just to me a sign of respect. But I, I like that. Yeah. It goes back to right. The, the, yeah, that's what the book is about, right? So it makes sense. Yeah. I feel like too, it's kind of a setup from what Elihu. The last thing Elihu says in the previous one is, um, "The Almighty, we cannot find it." Hmm. It's like that's the last one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Said, you know, he comes. Then he comes in a whirlwind. Starts setting up this. This is what I do. This is who I am, and you aren't going to get it. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. It's too bad there's a chapter. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. Yeah. And there wasn't originally, right? So, yeah. All right. Let's let's go ahead and finish up God's discourse here uh, again, because God's answers are overall a small percentage of the book. Uh, but so important to help us understand the book. Let's, let's read all of chapter 39. Becky's going to do that for us. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch to give birth to their offspring and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go forth and do not return to them. Who has let the wild ass go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift ass, to which I have given a step for its home, the salt land for its dwelling place? It scorns the tumult of the city. It does not hear the shouts of the driver. It ranges the mountains as its pasture, and it searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will it spend the night at your crib? Can you tie it in the furrow with ropes, or will it harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on it because its strength is great? And will you hand over your labor to it? Do you have faith in it that it will return and bring you and bring your grain to the threshing floor? Ostrich's wings flap wildly, though its pinions lack plumage. For, it's, for it leaves its eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that a wild animal may trample them. It deals cruelly with its young as if it were not its own. Though its labor should be in vain, yet it has no fear, because God has made it forget wisdom and given it no share in understanding. When it spreads its plumes aloft, it laughs at the force of its rider. Do you give a horse its might? Do you clothe its neck with mane? Do you make it leap like the locust? Its majestic snorting is terrible. Its paws violently exults mightily. It goes out to meet the weapons. It laughs at fear and is not dismayed. It does not turn back from the sword. Upon it rattle the, the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, it swallows the ground. It cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet shouts, it says, Aha! From a distance, it smells the battle, the thunder of the captains, and the shouting. Is it by your wisdom that the hawk soars and spreads its wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes its nest on high? It lives on the rock and makes its home in the fastness of the rocky crag. From there it spies the prey. Its eyes see it from far away. Its young ones suck up blood. And where the slain are, there it is. All right. So, more questions? God has a job, right? When did the mountain goats give birth? Do you know that, Joe? Do you understand the length? Do you understand the timing of the gestation cycle of the deer? 
Who set the wild ass free? Will a wild ox serve you? What about the ostrich? Do you understand everything there is to understand about ostriches? What about the horse who gave it its might? Who created its mane? Do you understand how the hawk soars? Do you command eagles to fly? So here God is using all of these examples from the, from the animal kingdom to say, I am the creator who is now speaking to you, who in my sovereign power set in motion and understand all of these complexities of creation that you cannot begin to fathom. Anything in this chapter that jumped out at you? Any specifics about any one of these animals? Or... Roger, I think, um, you know, we are awe-inspired by these words. Uh, but we have National Geographic. <laughs> we can watch on TV <coughs> and see the tiniest hummingbird and yes. all of those things. Yes. We are so blessed by the age that we live in. But imagine the people of right. that age, right. early on when yep. they were reading this, yep. and they were or listening to it, and probably not reading it, but they didn't know these things. Yeah. So many of the people did not know these things. Yeah. How awe-inspired they must have been. Right. Right. Yep. There was one of these uh, sections that really... Uh, piqued my interest and I wound up going down a, a rabbit trail when I was prepping for today's lesson. Uh, it was this one about the ostrich. The ostrich deals cruelly with its young as if they were not its own. Though its labor should in vain, yet it has no fear because God has made it forget wisdom and given it no share in understanding. When it spreads its plumes aloft, it lasts at the horse and its rider. Now that middle verse, there's three verses, that middle one, uh, stood out at me because this is a book of wisdom and this is saying that the ostrich has no wisdom, right? Has no understanding and yet with, uh, appears to be happy in its ignorance, right? <laughs> uh, it has no fear. The, the preceding verse said. So it's happy. So maybe that's a bit of a commentary on uh, that, that we should likewise be content in understanding that we have limited understanding, limited wisdom, right? But it's really this last verse here that sent me down that, that rabbit trail. Like, what is this saying? When it spreads its plumes aloft, it laughs at the horse and its rider. Like, what, what's, what's going on here? Is it saying that an ostrich is faster than a horse? Uh, so I Googled it. Uh, and indeed, it is true. So a, uh, an average horse can maintain about a, an average speed over a, a length of a, a mile to a mile and a half, about 30 miles per hour. Uh, the fastest horses, I learned this, are quarter horses, not thoroughbreds. The quarter horses have been clocked at a real short burst or sprint of up to 55 miles per hour. The Secretariat still holds the record for the fastest time at the Kentucky Derby, 
Churchill Downs is a mile and uh, a, a mile and a quarter long, uh, and uh, Secretariat did it in one fifty-nine, just under two minutes, one fifty-nine point four. If you calculate that out, that's at an average speed of thirty-seven point seven miles per hour. Uh, but thoroughbreds are not as fast as quarter, quarter horses. But, but the ostrich, on the other hand, can maintain a speed of about 43 miles per hour and has been clocked at burst of speed of 60 miles per hour. So who would have thought? Uh, so I'm going to enter an ostrich in next year's derby. So. <laughs> but indeed, so that, that one just jumped out at me. But, but going back into the summary of this of this chapter again. What how is God answering Job? Anything more that God has said here in this chapter that helps us to, to further answer this question? Yeah. Which kind of overwhelming of course with all these questions. And now this is from the animal world. But I think also as I read this this is what uh, eight or ten animals. God has created thousands of species yeah. of animals that are so small we can hardly see them. Right. And uh, by this sampling, it kind of teaches us that really there's no limit to His creative power with the animal kingdom. Um, so maybe, therefore, we can summarize it: we can take care of human bodies in a similar way. Yeah. Very good. Well, I'm, I'm curious what you all think and what you think as well. Um, it, it seems like what God is saying is pretty close to what Elihu was saying. I think so. Um, as far <laughs> it really as feels, if my summary of Elihu is correct, then yes, it yeah. does feel like that. God is sovereign. God made the world. Who are you to question? Um, and, you know, when we looked at uh, Elihu, we, we kind of mentioned, uh, you know, Job doesn't even respond to him. Like, it, it's... Uh, we talked about kind of the brashness of what he was saying, but but God is saying the same thing. So what's the difference? Yeah. What's the difference here in right. God's response versus other people's response? Right. Yeah. I was just looking at these these two and thinking back to Adam and Eve on the tree of knowledge of evil. That's when chaos begins to happen. And that's yes. all the evil animals. Yes. Also in that tree. Right. The wisdom that that man does. Right. Uh, what more chaos? Yep, yep, absolutely. I mean, to, to me, that's the whole chaos versus order is a huge theme in the Bible that really I don't think I was presented until just a few years ago look at, looking at that. And that's to me a little bit why. We can sort of say the answer to the question of whether God is answering Job is no and yes, because there's a little bit of a, uh, a mismatch there. Um, Job isn't answering directly Job's question, but he's providing an answer that Job should have been looking for all along. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it goes back to um, uh, what we've talked about, the, the retribution principle that Job's three friends certainly believed in that the good will prosper and the evil will suffer. They 
they never wavered on that belief, right? And that's why they firmly believed that Job had done something wrong. Now, Job fundamentally believes that as well, but he wavers on it because in his mind, he's done nothing wrong to deserve that, that suffering. So all four of them, and, and even Elihu to some extent, are wrestling with this concept of God's trustworthiness, God's justice, really, because in their mind, a just God would be rewarding the good and punishing the evil. So there's, the te there's a tear in the fabric of the justice of the universe, of the order of the universe as they see it. So some chaos has happened here that causes Job to say, well, if this is the way things work, God, you're not the God that I thought I was worshiping. Um, and so that's why how God can come back in these two chapters and say, yeah, but Job, you, that may be your understanding, but it's a very minute, finite understanding of everything that's going on in the universe, right? And all of these questions he's asking Job and these examples he's given Job are to show Job that you, don't, you can't begin to comprehend my justice and what all it takes to make sure the entire universe runs properly. Yeah. Although they didn't have natural geographic, they were hands-on with yeah. the animals. Yep. And they worked with them and understood them. Right. Them. Right. They, they had first-hand knowledge of these animals. Yep. And so he's saying, you've had first-hand knowledge of these and you still don't know mm -hmm. yep. how they do and why they do what they do. Yep. When he's explaining to them something that's right in front of them. Right, right. We're about out of time, but just real quick, just to, so we can finish up this, this section, uh, let's, let's go into the first five verses, really, of, of chapter 40, because the first couple of verses is where the poet draws uh, to a conclusion, Yahweh's initial response to Job. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Anyone who argues with God must respond. I'd love to ask you what your, your thoughts are that on that are, but since we're, we're out of time, we'll maybe come back to that next week. Uh, but I did like Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this verse. I think it's a good commentary. God then confronted Job directly. Now, what do you have to say for yourself? Are you going to haul me, the mighty one, into court and press charges? You know, that's what we've mentioned. It's as if Job is trying to take God into court and say, you're not keeping your part of the bargain, God. You're not being the just God that I understood you to be. But then what does um, Job come back and say? He doesn't have nearly as much to say now <laughs> as he had in the room. Uh, just two verses worth of response. See, I am of, no, I am of small account what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but will proceed no further. Again, let's look at what Peterson, how Peterson words it in the message. I'm speechless in all. Words fail me. I should never have opened my mouth. I've talked too much, way too much. I'm ready to shut up and listen. So this is why I think you know, there is this mismatch uh, between Job's question and God's answer. But Job seems to think that God has answered him enough that he's willing to shut up and listen, right? 
Thank you very much for your time, and thank you so much for all of the great discussions.